Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom, uh, for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Most gracious Father, I ask for the blessing of your spirit as I proclaim your word to your people that we all together might be strengthened by the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the interesting things about Mark's gospel is that even though the kingdom of God has been 
kind of a, a key piece of Mark's gospel all throughout. I mean, it, Jesus' gospel in Mark is, is talked about as the gospel of the kingdom. The authority of Christ is, is presented clearly throughout Mark's gospel. We have all of these kind of pictures and, and foreshadowings of the kingdom of God. But unlike the other gospels, until we get to chapter 15, at nowhere in Mark's gospel is Jesus ever referred to as king. Not a, not a single time. Even in the triumphal entry, Mark doesn't include that name or that title like the other gospel writers do. But then when we get to chapter 15, the, the 32 verses that we just read, Jesus is, is called king, and I get it sometimes mockingly, but Jesus is called king six times. Up till now, he's not been called king. He's not been referred to as king. It's been foreshadowed, and and I get that. But but he's never been explicitly set forth as king until here. Where in every paragraph of this section of Scripture, Mark sets him up explicitly as king. And then after this, and of course there's not much after this, but he's not referred to as king anymore. Anymore. He's shown to be king, of course, but, but it's only in these verses. And so, and so that kind of made me wonder, well, what, what is going on here? And it should make us think, why is all of a sudden Mark just explicitly saying Jesus is king? And I think it's because he wants us to see something about the kingship of Christ, the nature of the kingship of Christ in this story that he's telling That maybe perhaps we see some of the most fundamental things about the kingdom of God and about Christ as king through this, through his humiliation and his crucifixion and his false trial. And and I think that's what Mark is doing. I think he wants us to see, I think there's three things that we can draw out from this. One, the, the kingship of Jesus depends only on the will of God. Second, the kingship of Jesus is accepted only by faith. And third, the kingship of Jesus required his humiliation. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The kingship of Jesus depends only on the will of God. The kingship of Jesus is only accepted by faith. And the kingship of Jesus requires his humiliation. The kingship of Jesus, depending only on the will of God, is seen in the fact that that as we look at this passage, even though it may may seem like it, the reality is that the kings of the world, Pilate specifically, did nothing to either help or hinder the kingdom of God. He did nothing to, to establish Jesus as king. He did nothing to help or hinder Jesus' kingship. It was established only by the will of God. As we look at this, the first thing that, that we see, the first mention of Jesus as king, is Pilate in verse 2 asking him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers it in a way that, 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 that it's essentially an affirmative answer, but, but because of how it's written in Greek, everybody trips over themselves trying to translate it. He basically said, yeah, you, you've said it rightly. You've said it correctly. In the ESV it says, you have said so. And, and it sounds a little more probably enigmatic than, than what it was meant to sound. Jesus is just basically saying, yeah, actually, I am. 
I am the king of the Jews. Now, here's, here's why this matters at this point. It would have been very problematic in the first century in a, in a, a, a province ruled by Rome. It would have been incredibly problematic to start declaring that you are the king of a group of people that are supposed to be under the authority of another king. Those, those are fighting words. If all of a sudden you show up and you know, you know what? Even, even today, if, if someone showed up and said, you know what? I am the king of downtown Conway. I am now in charge of this section of downtown Conway. I make the rules. What these other people say doesn't matter. Even today, that's a problem. People would have some questions for you. The, the people that are in charge, when you started doing things that undermined their authority, certain people would show up at your door. It's no different, and in fact, probably magnified, when... When you show up and you're like, hey, I'm actually the king of these people that, that you think you've subjugated to yourself. And, and that's what the Jews wanted. We, we learned from the other Gospels. That's what the Jews wanted to happen. That they wanted the Romans to go, wait a minute. He's claiming to be king. Because they thought, because they misunderstood who Christ was, because they missed who he was, they thought if we can get Rome to stand against this guy, then we can bring an end to him. And so in the other Gospels, we, we, we learn that they, they even go as far as saying, we have no king but Caesar. Just completely selling out. Completely selling out in order to try to undo what it is that Jesus had been doing. Pilate Here's the charges that the chief priest, the council were accusing him of. And, and, and he wants to know, do you have any answer? And Jesus, just like he did with the, the chief priest, doesn't answer when he doesn't want to. Again, we see, like we saw last week, he's in complete control of the situation. Nobody else realizes that, of course. But he's in complete control. In the next scene, they're, they're in this scene where, where they, 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 there's this tradition where, where someone would be released... And the Jews call for Barabbas, this murderer, to be released. Again, they think we can, we can bring an end to what he's doing, to the claims, claims of his kingship. But what we find, of course, is, is they're unable to. Pilate doesn't get it. He continues calling him king of the Jews. And he's, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? See, Pilate is... is, is unconvinced and, and absolutely unconcerned about the claims of kingship by Jesus. And, and this is significant because if, if he thought there was anything actually to them, the only option he would have had under the Roman government would be to kill him. Because he would have been a traitor. He would have been a threat to the crown. But, but Pilate seems just absolutely unconcerned. We learn from the other Gospels that, that he was a wise man and listened to his wife. And his wife told him, look, I saw a vision and I have been troubled all night. Have nothing to do with this man. Like, get away. This is, this is not end well. And, and he's just unconvinced of the threat that Christ is. But they want, they want him dead. And so Pilate hands him over so that he can be crucified. The soldiers gather around him and, and they begin mocking him. Putting the crown of thorns on him. Hail, king of the Jews. Bowing down, pretending to kneel down before him and, and, and pay homage to him. 
And then they lead him to be crucified. And then at the crucifixion, there's a sign hung above his head, the king of the Jews. All right, so, so here you think, surely, if at any point the kingdom of God is actually threatened, here's where it is. You have the king on a cross dying. If at any point in human history the kingdom of God was under threat at all, this would be where it was. But, but as we know the rest of the story, even here, as Christ hangs dying, labeled king of the Jews, they think we're solving the problem. The Romans think we're getting rid of someone who might be a threat that we don't really think he is, but he might be a threat to the kingdom. The Jews think, ah, oh, we're getting rid of this guy who's been causing us all kinds of problems. This is a win. But the reality is, as we'll see in a little bit, when we consider the humiliation of the king, that this wasn't in any way an undoing of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God and the kingship of Christ didn't depend on anything in the world. And it couldn't be hindered by anything in the world, even by his crucifixion. Now, we need to stop and think about this for a moment. Because if the reality is that the kingship of Christ and the kingdom of God is neither helped nor hindered by anything in the world, if it's established only by the will of God, then we can immediately dispense of all of the fears that circulate in our culture about the kingdom of God being threatened. It's not. It's not. At at no point, even when Christ hung dying, at no point was the kingdom of God under threat. At no point was there a chance that, you know what, this might not work out. The kingdom might not continue. No. It depended on the will of God, which is perfect. It depended on the will of God, which isn't ever thwarted. It depended on the will of God, which no one can change. And so as we think about our world, as we think about our lives, as we think about the work of the church, we we need to think in those terms. The kingdom of God doesn't depend on us. The kingdom of the kingship of Jesus doesn't depend on us. It depends on the will of God exclusively. The kingship of Jesus isn't threatened by this world. It can go absolutely crazy. And the kingship of Christ will be under no threat whatsoever. And the kingdom of God will be under no threat of being undone whatsoever. The flip side, we could, we could see everything established and, 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 and reestablish a theonomy, not advocating that just to be super clear. And the kingdom of God wouldn't be being helped either because it doesn't depend on us. We, we love to talk in terms of, of building the kingdom and, and establishing the kingdom and growing the kingdom and, and all of these things as if somehow 
His kingship depends on us. It doesn't. Are we to to live as faithful citizens of the kingdom? Absolutely. Are we to to seek to bring other people in to the kingdom through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ? 100%. No doubt about it. Are we to teach people how it is that we live in the kingdom as faithful citizens in light of the good news of the victory of our king? Yes. Yes. But the kingdom of God doesn't actually depend on any of that. We do all of that because the kingdom of God is sure and certain apart from any of it. That's why we can be bold in this world. That's why we can boldly live as faithful citizens of the kingdom. That's why we can boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. And and that's why we don't have to feel threatened and scared. But we can do it in in gentleness and humility and kindness and concern and love for others. Because we know that the kingdom isn't actually threatened. See, sometimes we get so wrapped up in, 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 in our kind of cultural analysis and thinking about things that, that, that our evangelism comes across more as like aggressive and, 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 and you better get right or God's going to get you. And, and which like, I, I get it. But there's some truth to that. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Like, okay, judgment is real. I get that. But evangelism isn't about defending the kingdom from attacks that might be real threats. Evangelism, announcing the good news of Christ, is about that. Announcing the good news of those that we want to see brought into the kingdom with us. It's fundamentally loving to announce the gospel. Now, here's here's what I don't mean by that. Because that idea that it's fundamentally loving to announce the gospel, we we twist that all to pieces. And, and, And we make it as if like, okay, so what we mean by that is for me to say anything true, for me to get in your face with the hard truth of the Bible, I'm really just loving you. No, we're being jerks when we do that. We're not loving people. I'm not saying we don't take sin seriously. I'm not saying we don't say what needs to be said. But but to get in someone's face and browbeat them with the Bible, it's not loving just because it's true. And we don't have to do that because we're not actually threatened by this world. The kingdom of Christ isn't actually threatened by this world. Will it shake its fist at us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Has it ever pulled one person for whom Christ died out of the kingdom? No. Why? Because the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of God depend exclusively on the will of God, not you and I. And they're not threatened or helped or hindered 
by the means of this world. They're not. The second thing that we see about the kingdom of God from this passage is that the kingship of Christ and the kingdom of God are accepted only by faith. No other way. Pilate and, and, and his crew, they didn't, though, though it says in verse 5, that Pilate was amazed that Jesus gave no answer. I mean, yeah, it, it is fairly amazing to see someone accused of capital crime to stand there stalwart and, and, and unaffected apparently at this point by the charges. That's, that's an amazing thing to see. And, and he was amazed. But as one commentator points out, amazement with Christ is different than faith in Christ. Pilate and the others, they, they, they couldn't see Christ as king because he's only accepted as king by faith, which isn't even our own doing. It's a gift from the Spirit. And instead, what, what they do is they, they continue to present him as king of the Jews, but they, they're doing so in this mocking way. They put the crown of thorns on him and beat his head with a, with a, a stick of some sort. They put a purple, you know, purple was the color of, of royalty. They put a purple robe on him. They bow down. It's all just mockery. It's absolute mockery. They're making a fool out of him before they go to crucify him. They're beating him. They're spitting on him. And then they strip him, put his own clothes back on him, and take him to kill him. See, without faith, you can be directly face-to-face with the King of kings and Lord of lords. You you can be face-to-face with Christ the King himself and and mock him for such a claim and miss completely who he is. Because he's only received, he's only seen, he's only accepted as king by faith. We don't make him king of anything. We accept by faith the reality of his kingship over everything. But that's not something we can come up with on our own. Even when he stands right in front of us and we're amazed by him. We can't come up with it on our own. Now the other side that that, that can be more challenging for the church is is what, what happens next. Or, I'm sorry, what happened right before this? Right, right before the, the clothing and, and the beating and the crown of thorns. Because as I mentioned earlier, there was this, there was this tradition uh, apparently in, in the first century where on, on the day of the feast, uh, a prisoner would be released. And they had two options here. This, this dude named Barabbas. Side note, I preached an entire sermon on this passage one time calling him Barnabas. Barabbas. Barnabas was great. This dude named Barabbas that was an insurrectionist and a murderer, or Jesus, the king of the Jews. And here's what happened. They wanted Barabbas released because they wanted Jesus crucified. They wanted Barabbas, the insurrectionist murderer, released because they wanted Jesus crucified. Now, it's easy for us to hear this and be like, man, how, like, God, they must have just been the, just the craziest heathens to... to what in the world is going on? But, but we've got to see what was actually happening here. The chief priests, the council, stirred up the crowd for him 
for them to release Barabbas. The people whose job it was to, to hold on to the promises of God, the people who had been given the promises of God, the people who had the deepest knowledge of the promises of God, of his word, those whose job it was to maintain orthodoxy and faithfulness to the word of God, the religious people, when they saw that Christ was not bringing the kingdom they wanted, and when they saw that, that he never was going to, those whose job it was to maintain orthodoxy and faithfulness to the word of God chose an insurrectionist over Christ because he wasn't bringing the kingdom they wanted. See, we get very sidetracked even as we try to hold on to orthodoxy. We get very sidetracked about the kingdom we want and about what we think this needs to look like and about what faithfulness looks like. And, and when, like the council and, and, and like the chief priest, when we start to see a little bit of our power slipping away, We'll run to anyone that will maintain or promise to maintain what it is that we want. This is a warning to us. And I know I'm pushing some lines here. I think they need to be pushed. This is a warning to the American church, to us. to force us to ask, is the kingdom that we desire and the means by which we seek to secure it the kingdom that Christ came to bring? Or are we also all too willing to choose a murderer because we think he'll deliver the king, kingdom that we want for us? We've got to be very careful. The kingdom of Christ is only accepted by faith. And it's only established by Jesus. And he needs no one's help. Because it's only established by the will of God. The will of his father, who he came which he came to do perfectly. The third point that I want us to see from this passage is that the kingship of Jesus required the humiliation of Jesus. It required it. A lot of times when we begin thinking about the kingship of Christ, and, and, and we immediately jump to his exaltation. 
We immediately jump to, to his resurrection. We immediately jump to his ascension and him sitting at the right hand of the Father. We immediately jump to his triumphal return when he will just make his enemies look like a fool as he dashes them in pieces. With, we're like, oh, the kingship of Christ. And we sing all of these great hymns and, and, and we have all of our like, oh, it's good to be mighty and whatever ridiculousness we come up with. And when we limit the kingship of Christ to that, we miss the kind of king Jesus is. Because we miss that the kingship of Jesus required his humiliation. What he was going through here was kingly work. Earlier, we professed as we affirmed our faith together Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate both of his humiliation and exaltation. Christ here was being the exact king we need as he was mocked as he was beaten, as he was crucified. Without the humiliation of Christ, there is no kingdom. There there are no citizens. The humiliation of Christ was was required. We get to the end and and, and we begin to see something of of, of the kind of king that they wanted and, and, and frankly that we often want. They crucify the two robbers with him, those who pass by, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. You talked a big game, Jesus. This is pathetic. What a pathetic end to what we thought was going to be a glorious ministry. We thought you were going to rebuild it. We thought you were going to reestablish this stuff. We thought you were going to make it great. What a sad, pathetic end. As you hang there on the cross, unable even to save yourself. But again, we have to see it wasn't just the general population that did this. It continues, so also the chief priest with the scribes. In other words, those whose job it was to keep the ship sailing straight mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Do you see what's happening? They're demanding a king that doesn't have to be humiliated. They're demanding to be part of a kingdom that doesn't require humiliation. They're looking at Jesus and saying, if that's the kind of king you are, if that's what you're going to be, we're out. But if you'll bow to us and to our demands of what this kingdom is going to look like and what kind of king you're going to be, if you'll levitate off the cross and whip everybody's butt, then 
will believe. The problem is, had he done that, had he done that, he could then only ever have approached us in the justice that the king would come with. Because his humiliation, his death, was required for his people. Too often, like them, we want a king we can believe in rather than the king we've been given. And we want a kingdom to be a part of that is is a triumphant march rather than the kingdom that we get to be a part of that also requires our humiliation. Because remember what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, we get something here of a picture of the kingship of Jesus that gets really uncomfortable for us, I think. But it's absolutely necessary. Remember what Rob read to us earlier from Deuteronomy 17 about the king that would come. It was a king who had to be chosen by God because the, king, because the kingdom depends only on the will of God. It was a king who had to be from the, the, the people of Israel. And they weren't allowed to go back to Egypt for help establishing their kingdom, which becomes kind of this metaphorical idea throughout the Bible of, of not returning to foreign lands and not returning to, to foreigners to, to, to build and, and get your army and, and, and get strength to be established in the land. But what did they do? They immediately ran to Pilate. They immediately ran to Pilate for help. It had to be a king who would would write a copy of the law for himself that was approved by the scribes and then keep it perfectly so that he and his people could live in his kingdom forever. This is what we see Christ doing in his humiliation. Because the law that he was to write, we're told all throughout the Bible and even by Christ himself, was about him and bore witness to him and bore witness to his keeping of the law for his people and bore witness to his death in their place. What we see here in the humiliation of Christ is nothing less than the king that God chose from among his people to fulfill the law on behalf of his people and establish his kingdom forever. That's what Christ did. And the humiliation of Christ was necessary to his kingship. This is the kingdom that he brought. A kingdom that depends only on the will of God and not on us. A kingdom that is only accepted by faith and only entered by faith and not by our works. And a kingship that required the humiliation of the king and therefore requires our humiliation as we follow in his steps. That's Christianity.
That's the kingdom of God. That's what we've been called into. Not the triumphalistic version of things that we're so used to seeing and longing for. But a kingdom established by the king taking up his cross and then leading us to do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that the kingdom and kingship of Christ depends only on your will and not ours. That it's accepted and received by faith and not by our works. And that it required and he fulfilled the humiliation that it required. We acknowledge, Father, that 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 means that, that we're called to the same humiliation. To denying ourselves and taking up our cross in order to follow the king who has secured our salvation. And we confess that we find that difficult. We confess that we are too quick to settle for an approximation of the kingdom that this world promises us rather than resting wholly in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ, the true king, and never look away. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.